We are going to be starting a new series this particular semester. And what we're going to try to do is answer this question. Is Jesus relevant to our lives? And if so, how? And that's what we're going to try to answer. How is Jesus, this Middle Eastern peasant from the first century, at all relevant to your life and to mine? So to that end, we're going to try to answer that question by the way that he interacted with real life people. And so tonight he interacts with um, what, is, what has been called the woman at the well here in John 4. So if you have your passage, uh, why don't you reference it now and we'll take a look at it in John chapter 4 verse 4. Now he, that is Jesus, had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. And so the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? And Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. Yeah, what you said is quite true. <laughs> Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. This is God's word. Let me pray and then we'll take a look at it together, okay? Uh, So please pray with me. Father, I I ask that in these next few moments as we turn our attention to this um, great passage that you would give us help, that you would be our teacher, that you would open up our eyes and unclog our ears so that we would see and hear that which is good and beautiful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So yes, I shaved over the break. And um, I've spoken with many of y'all about what y'all have done over the break. You know, visited with family, reconnected with high school friends, traveled, did all kinds of fun stuff. You know what I did over the break? Nothing. (laughs) 
and it was amazing. It was glorious. All I did was stay at home, and I played a ton of Angry Birds, and I watched a ton of Lost, and I've been reading through Harry Potter. And um, so I'm in book five, so don't tell me how it ends. I'm, not, I'm only in book five. Um, but if you're familiar at all with the Harry Potter series, uh, in book one, or in you know, the first movie, of course... There is the mirror of Erised, if you're familiar, if you're, you know, seeing this. It's basically this big mirror of Erised, which is desire backwards. It's, you know, clever. And uh, <laughs> what you do is when you look into this mirror, it, sh- it reflects back to you your heart's deepest desires. So Harry, you know, when he stands in front of this mirror, he sees his parents standing there with him because his parents were murdered when he was little by he who must not be named. I will not say it. And... Um, <laughs> And so that is his deepest desire now when he looks into this mirror. He sees his parents. His friend Ron, when he looks into the mirror, he doesn't see Harry's parents. He sees Ron as like head boy, right? Because that's his deepest desire. If I were looking at that mirror, I would see 70 degree weather in Boone with me swimming in a river and then afterwards eating a blueberry pie. I mean, it'd be amazing. <laughs> Here's why I'm talking about this. is because this passage, in a, in a weird way, kind of functions like that mirror does. It exposes what your deepest desires are, only it goes a step further and shows you that the reason why your life is often such a mess is because of those very desires. So what Jesus does is he kind of enters into your heart's matrix to try to realign it and and put your desires back on its proper object. So what Jesus does is he interacts with this woman and he offers her and consequently us Three things. So I just want to look at these one at a time. The first thing that he offers her is satisfaction. It's the first thing. He offers her satisfaction. Now, there's two important details that you need to know about this woman to try and make sense of her story. The first is that she is a Samaritan. This means that she is racially different from Jesus. Jesus is Jewish. She is a different race. So they're racially different, but they're also religiously different. You hear her later in the story referencing a different temple. Should we worship your temple or our temple? And it's not just like celebrate diversity, like they loved being different. There is deep hostility between these two people that goes back 700 years. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. That's the first kind of clue that you need to know about her. Here's the second is that she's going out and getting water at the sixth hour. It's a minor little detail that you see in verse 6 there, but it's unbelievably important. Because to the Jewish mind, the day began at 6 a.m., so at the sixth hour is noon. She is out there drawing water by herself in the hottest part of the day, which is really weird, because women at that time would go and, and gather water together in the morning when it was really cool or in sort of like the cool part of the evening. In fact, kind of the, the water wells function like coffee shops of the day. There would be a kind of a social activity. People would kind of chat, catch up on life, process the latest episode of Glee, and you know, kind of <laughs> talk about that sort of thing. That's kind of what it was like. And so she's going out at the hottest part of the day in the Middle East, which is hot, and she's out there by herself. Why? Well, as the story unfolds, you you begin to discover she's extremely sexually promiscuous. She's had five husbands, and the man that she's currently living with and having sex with is not her husband. So to put it bluntly, she's the town whore. I I didn't mean that to get giggles, but but, I mean, it's, it's that sort of weight to it. I I mean, she would have been considered um, a slut or a skank. 
Those are not my words. I'm just trying to show you the gravity with which she would have been viewed. And no one wanted anything to do with her. So as a result, she is forced to go out to get water by herself in the hottest part of the day. And just take a second and just try to imagine the shame of that, of having everybody in the town know about your sexual history and your dirty laundry, and as a result, wanting nothing to do with you. I mean, can you imagine that? It'd be like everyone at App knowing about your sexual history or knowing about your pornography addiction. I mean, it's just filled with shame and loneliness. And here she is by herself. So here's the situation. Into this foreign village and into this hated woman's life walks Jesus. And here he is uh, sitting by the well because his disciples have gone into town to get some food. So he's chilling by himself. And in verse 7, it says that he asks her for a drink, which, of course, to us culturally, that's like, okay, whatever. But back then, that was enormously scandalous to address a woman, especially in private, because women socially, culturally at this time were considered inferior and men just didn't address women. But it was also the fear that if if people see us talking to each other, they're going to assume that we're doing something inappropriate. So to stay clear, men basically only just address their wives. So Jesus, when he talks to her, It is this shocking, scandalous thing. Actually, when the disciples come back, I didn't include it in your passage here, but if you kept reading in John 4, when they come back, it says that they are shocked to find Jesus speaking with essentially a sex addict by themselves. It's like crazy the fact that Jesus would address her. So with one sentence, can you give me a drink? He risks his, his ministry. He risks his reputation. He even risks his life if somebody was like radical enough to do something about this particular situation. But Jesus didn't care about any of that. He blows right through all of those cultural walls. He says, hey, what's a brother got to do to get a drink around here? (laughs) And of course, because she's a Samaritan and he's Jewish, she plays the race card and says, dude, we're not supposed to be talking, right? You're, You're a Jewish. What are you doing talking to me? And Jesus goes... If you knew who I was, you would have asked me for a drink. Which is really weird because there's like a well, and he doesn't have a bucket, and she does. And she's like, sir, I think you're confused because you got nothing to get water with. And so they start talking about water, right? They start talking about this, you know, issue of water. And Jesus kind of just cuts straight to it and goes straight for her jugular. And here's what he says. He essentially goes, you know what? You keep coming to this water well every single day to get water because it's not satisfying your thirst. And in the same way, that is exposing that your soul is thirsty as well. There is a deeper spiritual dehydration going on. And in the same way that this water is not satisfying your thirst, whatever you're doing to quench your deep soul thirst is not working either. I mean, look at verse 13. Here's what he says. He says, everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Here's what he's doing. He is exposing the fact that she is thirsty in a deep spiritual way. He is addressing that ache in her soul that is unsatisfied. You know what I'm talking about? That deep sort of thirst that you just cannot seem to quench. I mean, I'm sure everybody in this room has felt it because you know exactly what he's talking about. I mean, everybody who walked through those doors and came in here and sat down has experienced that or is experiencing that right now where you are (coughs) 
parched on the inside. And whatever you are doing to try to quench it, it's just not satisfying you in this permanent, ultimate way. And so as a result, what some of you have done with that deep thirst is reacted the same way to what this woman in the story has done. And you have tried to satisfy that and quench that thirst through your sex life. So as a result, what that looks like for you is that you just sort of hook up with people or you have these kind of random makeouts at parties or you're addicted to porn or you, um, you know, mess around or have sex with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. And that pattern, as you know, it doesn't satisfy you, right? I mean, it sends you back for more and more and more. And just like this woman in the story, it's not working. And Jesus is saying, look, it's like you being in a dry and barren desert and trying to quench that thirst by taking a big gulp of hot sand. It's not working. You know exactly what that's like. But some of you, it's not sex or sort of sexual activity. It's essentially just sort of relational addiction, just the desire to be needed by somebody from the opposite sex. And so what you do is you enter into a relationship and uh, because it's not as exciting, after a while you just sort of move on to the next exciting thing. And because you know, you, essentially you, you lose interest there and you hop to the next relationship. And so your life is just sort of this series of one shallow relationship after another. I mean, this sort of summarizes this woman's life, right? Been married five times and she's living with a guy that she's not married. It's just this whole wreckage of cluttered, shallow relationships that is her story now. You know what that's like. <clears throat> Others of you, it's not the sex. It's not the relationships. It's just getting good grades. If you just get good grades, maybe that'll quench that thirst. Or maybe it's just your political involvement. If I'm politically active or your moral involvement, your moral rigor, everybody in this room is doing something to try to quench that thirst And it's not that the sex or the relationships or the politics or the moral stuff, that's not the problem. Those are actually good things. The problem is that you are looking to those things to satisfy that thirst and it's not working, right? It just leaves you dry and parched and dehydrated and wanting more. It does not ultimately satisfy you. And that's why Jesus is boring into the core of this woman to expose her to her own thirst, and to say, I, I, I can offer you something better. You know, I love the Mumford & Sons, one of my favorite bands now. And they've got this great song called um, Roll Away Your Stone. And there's this great line from the song that goes, And I have filled this void with things unreal. And all the while, my character it steals. Darkness is a harsh term, don't you think? And yet it dominates the things I seek. I mean, that's brilliant. I mean, you see what he's saying, right? <laughs> I am trying to fill this void with things unreal, and it's backfiring. It's, it's stealing my character. It's filled with darkness, and yet this is what I seek, and it's not working. It's not satisfying this thirst, this soul ache, this soul barrenness. It's not working, and I keep trying to fill it with things, and it's not working. And that's what Jesus is doing. He is trying to expose her to the fact that you are trying to fill that void with your relationships with men. And just like having to come back to this well every single day because it's not permanently satisfying your physical thirst, the men are not satisfying your soul thirst. And so what he does is he offers her pure satisfaction. Finally, something that will quench that deep soul thirst. That's what he is offering her. And so it's really funny, actually, um, 
she doesn't, she doesn't really get it at first. And so in verse 15, you know, read it with me. She goes, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. I mean, you see what she's thinking. She's like, dude, you got some magic water that's like going to prevent me from having to keep coming back to this well? Hook a sister up. I need that. And so, of course, she doesn't get it. Um, but Jesus now takes the conversation a step further because now he's offering her a, a second thing. He offered her satisfaction first, and now he is going to offer her freedom. Freedom. Listen to what Jesus says next, verse 16. He says, go call your husband and come back. Now, that would have immediately struck a nerve with this woman because, as you know, her whole sexual physical, relational background is a very sensitive issue, one filled with guilt and one filled with shame. She doesn't want to go there, and that's exactly where Jesus wants to go. You know, they're talking about water and being satisfied, and he says, okay, well, go get your husband. I mean, he, he, he is exposing the fact that you have gone after this thing and tried to satisfy your soul with women, or with uh, men. And, and here's, what he said. here's what she says, verse 17. I don't have a husband. I mean, you see exactly what she's doing, right? I mean, she's, she's bending the truth, kind of throwing up a half-truth to say, uh, I don't have a husband. In other words, uh, let's not talk about this. I don't really want to go there. And so she says, you know, kind of this half-truth and throws up this smoke screen. And it's because she doesn't want to own up to the reality of her story. I mean, it's true what she said, I don't have a husband, but there is a lot loaded into that statement. And you, and you know what this is like, too. When you have things that you have buried so deep that you do not want to go there, things that have happened to you or things that you have done that you have just buried so deep and you, are, you don't want to talk about it, you don't want to address it, you don't ever want to deal with it. And so what you do is you bury it deep and you just layer over it with smiles or with religious activity or social busyness, something so that you don't have to deal with it. And if anybody begins asking about it and poking around in that area of your life, you lie or you panic and you bend the truth or you throw up diversions or smoke screens. And that's exactly what she is doing. She does not want to be found out. She wants this thing hidden and buried. But Jesus is in the business of exposing that which is hidden. I mean, he knows her story. He knows all of her junk, right? I mean, he, he, he says in verse 17 and 18, if you look at it, he goes, you know, that's a really interesting way to put it, that you don't have a husband. That's pretty interesting because you've had five husbands and the guy that you're currently having sex with, that coward who doesn't love you enough to put a ring on your finger, who's just using you for your body, yeah, that's not working out either, is it? He's basically saying, I know everything. I know it all. And so what, what he's doing is he is inviting her to come out of the dark into the light and live in reality over here where he is, to be honest. This is actually his kindness and his grace to her, to try and coax her out of the darkness and the secrets that she wants buried and to say, look, come over here. I'm offering you the freedom to stop hiding and the freedom to being honest. Another favorite band of mine, the Avett Brothers, um, have a, a great song, Paranoia in B Major. One of the best lines in that song is he says, I got secrets from you and you've got secrets from me because you're so worried about what I'm going to think. Baby, I'm worried too. I, I think that hits it right on the head. The reason we don't want our story exposed is because we're worried about what the other person's going to think, right? We are worried that if I'm found out, what are they going to think about me? 
This, this happens to me all the time as one who's in ministry. And, you know, I sit down with students. I sit down with y'all and we, you know, have coffee or whatever. And I ask you questions about your life. And more often than not, you, you just lie to me or you give me half-truths. I mean, I, I understand it's because you're, you're worried about what I'm going to think. You're worried that I'm going to be shocked by what you give me. And so, you know, I'll ask, you know, you know hey, what's going on? How are y'all doing? You know, you and your relationship with your boyfriend, your girlfriend. You say, oh, we're doing great. You know, awesome. I'll say, really? Okay, well, tell me more about that. You're like, well, we're, we're struggling right now. <laughs> and I say, okay, like, what does that mean? Or like, can you tell me more? Or you go, well, we're, we're struggling physically. And, um, and I know that you're kind of testing me to kind of feel out how much can this guy take before he gets freaked out and smacks me or something. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, well, you know, Tell me more, like, what does that mean? And uh, you're like, well, we, we, we've just, we, we just kiss a lot. And too much, we kiss too much. I'm like, okay. <laughs> like, is that it? Like, is that all you wanted to say? And by the end of the conversation, it's, oh, we're getting naked together and having sex four times a week. I mean, like, that's, that's the conclusion that eventually comes out. And I, I use that as an illustration, not because I expect you to, like, pour out your entire story to me. I don't expect that. I, I tell that story so that you know that you're just like this woman. You don't want to be found out either. I don't either. I mean, we don't want our stories exposed because we are so worried about what the other person is going to think. And the reason we don't want to be found out like that is because you and me and this woman, we don't have gospel confidence. Here's what I mean by that. The gospel is this. It is the good news that God looks at you and sees your sin and your shame and your struggles and your secrets and still accepts you and approves of you because of what Jesus has done. That is good news. If we believed that, if we really believed that, that would give us all the confidence in the world to actually come out and not care at all about what other people think. I mean, just think through the logic of it. If the king of the universe says, I approve of this person, I accept them, I love them, I delight in them, who cares what the servants think, right? If we had that sort of gospel confidence, we wouldn't have to hide behind the lies and the half-truths. We, we wouldn't have to lean on these sorts of crutches and, and, and you know, divert people's attention. Why would we? We would have gospel confidence to actually come out. We would have the freedom to be honest. You remember that episode from uh, uh, The Office where Michael Scott, the kind of office manager, you know, that idiot kind of main guy, Steve Carell, um, he's going through financial trouble. And I think it's Oscar or one of the accountants comes up to him and says, look, you need to think about declaring bankruptcy. And so because, you know, Michael Scott's an idiot, he walks into the office, like, you know, room and goes, I declare bankruptcy. <laughs> and Oscar comes aside and is like, dude, that's not really how it works. And, uh, but, but, in the gospel, that's exactly how it works, of declaring openly, look, I am bankrupt. I got nothing. I am morally and spiritually empty and bankrupt. I got nothing to hide behind anymore. I'm a mess. And Jesus still loves me. That's the sort of gospel confidence. That's the only thing that will give you the ability and the power to come out and be honest, brutally honest, even about yourself. And Jesus is, is offering her that the freedom to come out of the dark and start living in reality where he is. Only the gospel will give you the freedom and the power to be that vulnerable. 
So that's what Jesus is doing. But, but okay, back to the story. Here's where Jesus is going. He, he is just drilling into her heart, into the very center of her being. And now she begins to pick up on what he's doing, right? I mean, he's been asking these questions. Now she starts to figure out what he's all about. And so she starts to panic. <laughs> and so she starts throwing up as many diversions as she can because she's like, I do not want to go here. So look at what she says in verse 19, right after he says uh, what he said about her relationships. Verse 19, sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim, to, uh, claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. I mean, here's what, she, here's what she does. Jesus, that's an interesting insight into my sexual history. Hey, let's have a theology debate. Um, we worship over here. You worship over there. What's your position on this age-old discussion? I mean, you see exactly what she's doing, right? Can we please stop talking about me? Um, you know, like, uh, enough about me. What about you? Like, what do you think about this, the, you know, worship stuff? And, I mean, you know exactly what that's like, where you're like, can we do anything except talk about this? I mean, she's panicking and squirming, and Jesus' response to her question is unbelievably brilliant. He has offered her satisfaction, then he offers her freedom, and here with this last response, he offers her himself. Because she wants to start talking about worship as this smokescreen. Let's talk about this. This is sterile. This is objective. This will get off of me. And Jesus takes the bait. He's like, okay, let's talk about worship. Here's why. It's because this whole conversation is about worship. She thinks that she's kind of throwing him off her trail, and he's, she's actually leading him directly into her heart. So here's what Jesus says in verse 21 through 24. I'll just summarize it quickly. He says, look, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, but right now you're not worshiping the right thing. But the good news is that, is that you have a Father in heaven who is actually seeking you to worship the right thing. He is on a search and rescue mission for your heart because this, really, this thing is about worship. Which if you think about it, how does that make sense? She's got this sexual history, sort of this relational sexual addiction with guys. And Jesus is talking about worship. And you're like, what? Here's the connection. When the Bible uses the word worship, it means devotion, what your heart loves. So you could go to a worship service like a church or a temple or synagogue or something, sing worship songs, be really religiously you know, worshipful on Sundays or whatever, but really be living for your career or for your family or for money. And the Bible says that's what you worship. You can go do the formal worship thing all you want, but what you center your heart on, what you wake up in the morning for, what really gets you going, that is the thing that you worship. It is a heart thing. And so Jesus says, look, you are worshiping men. You are centering your whole heart on your relationships with men. And that's not the right thing. But the good news is, is that the Father in heaven is pursuing you to, so that your heart worships the right thing, namely him. That's what Jesus is doing. And so the question is, for you, not, am I worshiping or not? Am I a worshipful kind of person? Am I a you know, spiritual person or not? That's not the question. The question is, what are you worshiping? It's just the assumption that everybody in this room worships something. But of course, not everybody's worshiping the right thing. We worship sex, relationships, grades, you know, approval from people, control. There's lots of options. 
So here's what, you know, throughout this whole conversation, she just keeps throwing up these diversions to keep Jesus off of drilling into the center of her heart. You know, so she's like throws out the race card at first. Then she bends the truth about her relationships. Then she's like, can we just talk about religion? I mean, she's throwing out race, relationships, religion, anything to keep him from talking about her heart. So here she is at the end of her rope with nothing else to kind of hide behind or stand on. And here's what she says in verse uh, 25. She goes, I know that Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. I mean, you can almost kind of picture her crying at this point and saying, look, all I know is that one is coming, and he will make everything right. And Jesus looks at her in the face and says, that is me. The one that you are seeking is right here in front of you. He is offering her himself. He is the answer. He is the solution to her deepest needs. And he is the solution to your and my deepest needs as well. So before we close, I just want to answer that question, how though? Three quick reasons why Jesus is the answer to your and my deepest needs, and then we're done. Here's the first reason. It's because Jesus seeks us. Jesus pursues us. The claim of the Bible is that God left heaven to come down and become a man in the person of Jesus. Why? For this woman, for this sex addict, whose life is a moral disaster area, he came for her and for you and for me. He did not come for people who have their life together, but for people like this. This is your God. Isn't that amazing that someone would come after us, but not rejecting us? Not to shame us, but to get us. He comes pursuing us. So I know some of you are in this room right now asking yourself this question, why am I here tonight? <laughs> Maybe it's because your you know, roommate drug you here and you're like, dude, why, am, why did you drug me to this religious Christian thing? This is stupid. Or you know, you're, you're sending yourself thinking, dude, this is the last place where I would ever think to find myself. This is some weird Christian thing. You know the real reason why you're here? The ultimate reason why you are here right here tonight It's because Jesus is pursuing you. That's what he is doing. You are in this room because he is after your heart. And that is a good thing. (laughs) Because I need to be pursued too, and you do as well. So that's the first reason. It's because he pursues us. He seeks us. Here's the second reason. It's because he is patient with us. I mean, throughout all of her diversions and trying to get him off of her trail, he is just patiently, gently Keep going after her. He says, look, I know you don't want to go here. I know, I know. But we're going to go there and we're going to do it gently. I mean, this is how patient he is with her. And so when you think about it, all the times that you have failed him or doubted him or rejected him, Jesus does not write you off, but he is patient with you through all of that. And you need that and I need that because our hearts are prone to wander. Here's the last reason. He seeks us. He is patient with us. And he loves us. This is the last one. It's because he loves us. When he, when he addresses this woman, he risks everything. He risks his reputation, his ministry, his life. But to save this woman, he didn't just risk his life, but he gave his life. Because as the story unfolds, as Jesus continues to live, he goes and his end is that he dies barbarically on a Roman cross. Why? How does that make any sense? The Bible says that when Jesus dies on the cross... He is dying as our substitute, meaning he receives what we deserve. The shame and the sin and the struggles that we have deserve to be cast out and deserve to, so that we are rejected. 
But Jesus says, let me be rejected and cast out in their place. He receives what we deserve. But the glory of the gospel is not just that. Not just that he receives what we deserve, but that we receive what he deserved. Namely, approval and acceptance and forgiveness. And so this woman, with her sexual history and her brokenness and her baggage, can stand before God and be loved and accepted and approved of. That is amazing when you think about it. That you in your situation and my in my situation for our secrets and our sin and our struggles and our shame can stand in front of God and be accepted, not shamed, not rejected, because Jesus was shamed and rejected for us. That is good news. That's what Jesus is doing, and that's where we are going this semester. He looks at real people, broken, filled with shame, filled with guilt, and he offers them satisfaction from their thirst and freedom from their hidden shame and ultimately he offers them and us himself and the question is will you receive him that's the question i want to leave you with Uh, please pray with me father we are thirsty and we admit that we have tried to quench our thirst on things unreal things that could never satisfy us give us eyes to see the pursuing and patient love of Jesus and give us the grace to respond in faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.